All right, John 2. Jesus cleaning out the temple. Clearing out the temple. Who has heard this story before? Anybody raise your hand? Heard the story of Jesus clearing the temple? It's a good one. One question um, I would ask as we start studying this story today is what you come in thinking that this story is about. There are a handful of explanations out there, and most of them sort of vaguely center around the idea that Jesus is not cool with us using the church for our own personal profit. And there is definitely some truth to that. I don't think Jesus is a big fan of us using his church for our financial purposes. A lot of people do it. But actually, I don't know that that's the main lesson here as much as that's a great lesson here. I don't know that this story is so much a story about ministry finance, though I see the correlation. I think today what we'll discover is that this story has much more to do, not with the topic of money, but with the topic, the topics rather, of authority and connection. That Jesus has the authority to tell us what is sin and what is righteousness. That he has the authority to drive out our sin even if it's going to disrupt our lives and cost us something. And that he does all of that because he desires pure connection with us, pure worship from us, so much so that he became like the animals being sold for a profit in today's story. And he shed his blood so that we could enter his courts for free. Let's dive in. The story starts with expectation and astonishment. We'll just kick it off at the beginning here. It's typically the best place to start. Verse 13, now the Passover was, uh, the Passover of the Jews, rather, was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So if you're following along in John, he's in Cana. And it's that time of year where he's got to go back up to Jerusalem which was actually heading south, but they always said that they were going up to Jerusalem because it was the city on the hill. It was the place, uh, the city of God. It's where you would be in his presence around his temple. So they always said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And when they would go up to Jerusalem, this would have included a really long walk of ascension. And the idea is that as you ascended the city on the hill, as you ascended to Jerusalem, you would grow in expectation of what God would do when you got there. You would grow in expectation of what you would experience with God. In fact, this was so deep within the Jewish culture that they actually would sing as they walked to Jerusalem for things like the Passover. They would sing psalms from our book of Psalms called Psalms of Ascent. They were singing in a moment of expectation of, of celebrating God and meeting God at their big festival each year, the Passover festival, where they remembered the redemption of God and how he freed them from slavery in Egypt. 
Jesus and his disciples would have been expectant of a refreshing and spiritual experience. They're expectant to be around holy and reverent and and life-giving worship. And Jesus, he enters into the outer court after finally ascending on a long walk up to the temple and he sees something else that does not meet expectations. Something he cannot stand with, something he cannot stand for, the money changers and the merchants. Thus the astonishment. Look at verse 14. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Here's some of what is going on. Like Jesus and his disciples, not everyone who worshiped God lived in and around Jerusalem, right? We know from history and from the Bible that many of the Jewish people were dispersed to other nations for several different reasons at different times. So these people lived all over the world. So they had to come in from all these different regions all over the place, ascending to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to make sacrifices to God at this time of year. Now, as you can imagine, traveling in those days, none of it was really first class, especially traveling from far away. This was a particularly hard road, my friends. Back then, I mean, this is not the Swamp Rabbit Trail. This is not cruise control. This is not economy seating, which is really only like two more inches of seating. It's like 175 extra dollars. They won't even give you an extra bag of pretzels. I found that out after several tries. But the idea is, yeah, this is not easy road. So as you can imagine, getting all the way to Jerusalem with an animal that is without blemish and without spot is almost impossible. So many people would make it to town first, and then they'd buy an animal to sacrifice once they got there. And that makes sense. And Jesus is not opposed to things that make sense. However, here's what's happened, is that the temple leaders figured this out, right? They've done some research in the market, and they have decided that they could actually take a cut of all that profit from the animals if they just cut out the middleman of the marketplace, and they sell you the animal right here in the outer court of the temple, right when you walk in. It is, it is for convenience sake. They have essentially started a sacrificial drive through They were the first in curbside pickup. True story. And it is likely... That as you came and bought your sacrifice at such a convenient place, they were charging some sort of surplus for that convenience. What else is going on in this verse is the money changing, right? You're coming into Jerusalem around the time of a Passover. You had to pay the temple tax, and it had to be a particular silver coin that you paid in at this time period of history. If you're coming in from a different region, you did not have that coin. You had a totally different currency. And so what you got to do is exchange that currency for the proper coinage to pay the temple tax. No problem. You're already here buying sacrifices. We will also exchange your currency for your giving to the Lord for a fee, And that fee likely went to the priests, the leaders of the temple, who would let the money changers do business here. 
So Jesus is coming in and he is expecting this to be this pure moment of worship to the Father. And instead, he is being bombarded with ads and with sales pitches to try to kind of just stretch the tension out more for you because it's kind of hard for us to connect with the emotion of Jesus in this story. Since we don't do temple, we are now the temple. Since we don't do sacrifices, Jesus is our sacrifice. Since we're so far removed from the old covenant and now, thank God, under a new covenant, let me try to just kind of give you the idea, uh, uh, the emotion, the offense of this. Okay, so imagine you come next week, we do communion on the first Sunday of the month, you come in for communion service, and you're expecting a moment, a moment we take every month to examine your heart, a moment to remember the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that has saved you before you take the elements. You're expecting a powerful, a pure moment of worship to God. But instead, we say, as the ushers pass out the communion cups, there's something we want to show you on the screens, and it's a commercial for one of our members' businesses, right? I I don't know what it was. Brother Hank's auto sales, right? While we're passing out the cups, go ahead and watch this. And it has all the, the excitement and the, the volume of a, of a regular you know, dealership commercial. Like Gil, Jay Gilstrap and the family, the Gilstrap family dealership, the truck farm of Easley. You know, it has all that obnoxiousness, right? Come on down for a sale. You can't afford to miss. No credit needed. You know, Two-year warranty, 90 days, same as cash, blah, blah. And it's got all that going on. While we're passing out communion... Now, wouldn't that be massively, massively out of place, especially if I get a 15% commission for whatever Brother Hank sells, right? For most of you, you would say, yeah, that's, that's jacked up. That would upset you. Like you'd probably find another church and rightfully so. But then imagine this to heighten it even more. The bread and the juice. Imagine the bread and the juice we pass out next week. Imagine that that represents your actual body and your actual blood. Imagine how Jesus would feel about our communion service. Well, you don't really have to imagine it because that is actually the story in the text today. These sacrifices that they are selling for gain and the temple tax and the temple itself, it all pointed to him. I mean, it's already been declared in John chapter one that this is the lamb of God. This is his father's house and they've turned it into a house of merchandise. And here's the deal. That's a problem for Jesus as the God of all creation, because to him, there is nothing more important than his creatures worship him as creator. So his astonishment turns into anger, righteous anger. He drives out the distraction. He drives out the sin. And it is quite a dramatic scene. It gets a little PG here. Check this out, a little violent. Check it out. Verse 15, we see this. Anger and correction. Anger and correction. Verse 15, he says, when he had made a whip of cords. 
Happy Passover. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep, with the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables, and he said to those who sold dove, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now, this is not your typical image of Jesus, is it? We do not often think of Jesus like this. I know I'm slower to think of this scene. I'm faster to think of his more merciful scenes where he's just caring for people and helping people fish and taking naps on boats, right? We want and accept it's easy for us to remember that kind of Jesus. He's sort of this Fred Rogers singing, won't you be my neighbor? And there are, honestly, sometimes where Jesus is gentle and he is lowly and he is kind and he is like that. That is part of who Jesus is. It's just not the only part of who he is. He is also like a king who defends his kingdom. And he is also like a judge who brings swift judgment. And he is also, the Bible says in Revelation 19, like a warrior riding on a white horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's also like a worshiper who's come in from out of town, who sees sin instead of righteousness and calls it out with unflinching boldness in a loud protest. On this occasion, Jesus doesn't start a dialogue. He doesn't ask the money changers, the salesmen about their past wounds, which led them to a life of changing the, chasing rather the dollar. Right? He doesn't consider how some of these folks, this is how they feed their families. What about their families? He just lays down the rebuke of the ages. Jesus, Jesus fashions a whip and starts slinging it at cattle and sheep and oxen, stampeding them out of the gate. He walks over to the table and he chucks the cash register onto the ground and flips the tables upside down. Could you imagine being one of the disciples in this moment? Like you just left your business behind. You're following a rabbi. He can do amazing things. Just last week, he turned 180 gallons of water into wine because he cared so much for his mother and those people in Cana. I mean, this is clearly a man from God. And when we came to God's house and he started breaking stuff, what? It's in this text we see the anger of Jesus. Say, what? Jesus is angry? I thought anger was a sin, and he never sinned. Anger is a sin is a common misconception. It is true that Jesus never sinned, because anger is not always a sin. The scriptures actually divide anger into two parts. There's righteous anger, and there is unrighteous anger. It's also known as the anger of God and the anger of man. Now, the anger of man is a sin. 
We are called to quell the unrighteous anger inside of us. James tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. However, there is a righteous anger. Paul tells us to be angry and sin not. That's a fascinating verse. Be angry and sin not. We are actually called at times to allow and to experience the anger of God. The major difference between the two is that unrighteous anger drives away worship and righteous anger drives away sin. Unrighteous anger drives away worship. It drives away forgiveness and reconciliation. It drives away an opportunity to help your brother or sister, because you're just going to go home and sulk. It drives away your chance to glorify God because you're so mad, you just want to be right rather than think about how he might be right. You're not even listening. It drives away opportunities to worship. Righteous anger provides an opportunity of worship because righteous anger drives away sin. Like greed, like exploiting the vulnerable as they're trying to worship, like harmful leadership that abuses their people. How's your anger this morning? Is it righteous or is it unrighteous? If you've come in this morning angry, welcome. You're always welcome here. Bring all your anger with you. Even if it takes the whole pew, we'll save that pew just for you. Bring it in and bring it to Jesus so that you can test it to see, is this the anger of man, the anger of God? Is this the anger that is unrighteous or the anger that is righteous? We all have anger. We all have to test it. We all have to see what kind of anger is this? How do you know? Right? It could be kind of confusing because sometimes both feel kind of similar. And sometimes they both are present with us at the same time. That's really, a, that's a trip. It's just part of being a human being. You can be unrighteously and righteously anger, sometimes kind of simultaneously. Right? That is bewildering. And then also sometimes the way we should act in our righteous anger sort of looks, not 100% by any means, but sort of kind of looks like how we would act in unrighteous anger. So like, how do we know? Well, we look at Jesus. In Jesus, we see righteous anger perfectly on display. Here are some things just to note, right? What's righteous anger look like? Well, it looks like Jesus' anger. And here's just some things I thought were interesting about this scene that you might find interesting as well. Just some things to note. A couple things about Jesus here as he's flipping tables. One thing to note, Jesus isn't flipping tables all the time. I have seen this in ministries that I, we love. We love all, anybody who preaches Jesus and his gospel. We're fans of. But some of our brothers, man, they're flipping tables every Sunday. It's like all they know how to do. Right? A lot of folks believe Jesus flipped tables, but he only flipped them once. Actually, I'll take that back. It looks like he flipped them twice, but it's kind of debated. And I'll tell you what I mean. Some of you may have noticed this. If, if you've studied the Bible for a while, if you're newer to the Bible, let me tell you a little something about it. The, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels, they put the story of Jesus flipping the tables at the end of their gospel, right before he's crucified. John, as you are aware, as we're going through the 
book of John, he has put the story of Jesus flipping the tables at the beginning of his book, at the beginning of his gospel. And there are people who think that he changed the time frame on it so that he could make a point about his authority, that he just takes the same story, but instead of putting it at the end of his gospel, he just kind of inserts it into the middle, out of chronological order on purpose to make a point that he's trying to make about Jesus having authority over Israel and all these things. There's another school of thought. It's actually two times he flips the table. He flips the tables in the temple at the beginning of his ministry, then he flips the table at the end of his ministry. That John is talking about one occasion, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are talking about a second occasion. That is where I lean. I think perhaps he flipped the tables at the beginning and the end of his ministry, sort of as bookends, to prove this is really what I've come to do, to supersede the old covenant and my ministry brings about the new covenant either way he flipped the tables once or he flipped them twice in his whole ministry so if you find yourself flipping tables every other day you're probably experiencing unrighteous anger right if you're flipping tables more than you're sharing the good news serving singing, doing devotions, praying for the orphans and widows, you're probably angry about the wrong things. And you're likely not following Jesus in your anger. Another thing I noticed, just interesting to me, Jesus flipped the tables of the people who should know better. What, what, what tables is Jesus flipping here? It's the tables in the temple, the tables that are being run really honestly at the end of the day by the priests, the tables that are run by believers who know the word and are choosing to ignore it for a prophet. Notice, just notice, just interesting, Jesus doesn't walk into the pagan temple and flip all the tables. Are you flipping the tables of the lost? Like you're just shocked, shocked that they're so sinful and you're complaining about them left and right. They're destroying everything. They're the worst. Well, it could be unrighteous anger there, my friend. You have to remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're under the power of darkness. They are of their father, the devil, controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And such were some of you. I know I was. They, like me, had no hope unless someone bestow upon them the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, how can they call on whom they have not believed? And how can they believe on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? When it came to the lost, Jesus didn't flip the tables. He invited them to the table. If you're not willing to do that, possible you're not following Jesus in your anger also he flipped the tables that actually mattered just notable right money changers taking advantage of others the powerful abusing their power the ones supposed to be leading worship are leading people astray those are the tables Jesus flipped in our unrighteous anger we flip Jesus or sorry, we flip tables Jesus never told us to flip. Make a big deal out of something like a secondary theological issue or someone's preferences or standards different than ours. The Bible actually calls that unrighteous anger. 
flipping every table, even the ones that are not black and white. The Bible tells us this type of anger stems from two pretty bad things. Ignorance and arrogance, right? Who wants that on their Twitter bio this morning, right? <laughs> Tell me about yourself. Well, you can learn a lot about people by what they get mad about. It says if you get mad about these things, it's, it's ignorance, it's arrogance. And in fact, it, it, look at verse 17. In fact, it, it says that here. The disciples are watching Jesus clear the temple. And I'm sure that they must have been bewildered wondering, what is going on? But then it says, that, you know, the Holy Spirit gives them a hint. Look at verse 17. It says, the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Right? They remembered Psalm 69, which contains a messianic prophecy that zeal for the Father's house would consume the coming Messiah, now here found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that this kind of anger, this righteous anger Jesus exudes is based in zeal for the worship of the Father. It is based in zeal for people being connected to God, which we will talk about in a second. But that word, zeal, also stuck out to me just as an interesting word. We don't use a ton, so I went and dug into the word zeal, and I found another time where that Greek word zeal is used... Very interestingly, it's in Romans 10 when Paul says that his fellow Israelites have denied the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus and have attempted to establish their own righteousness. That's arrogance. And he says they do this because they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. That's ignorance. They were worried about circumcision and dietary laws and the Sabbaths that have all been fulfilled and superseded by Jesus' new covenant. And they're flipping tables that don't even matter. If you're flipping tables, Jesus doesn't flip. You're not following Jesus in your anger. I think the most important thing to note, well, one of the most important things to note about this scene it's not just what tables he's flipping, but why he's flipping them. I think that's, that's, a, that's something we should know. We see that Jesus is flipping tables for the right reasons. Like verse 17 said, Jesus' anger, his righteous anger is rooted in zeal. Zeal for the Father's house. Zeal for the worship of the Father. Zeal to restore worship where worship has stopped. He is not flipping tables for his own satisfaction. He is not flipping tables for revenge or for the pleasure of being right. He is not flipping tables for superiority's sake or for the pride of belittling someone. He is not flipping tables because he is zealous for his own glory, but he's flipping tables because he is zealous for the glory of God, the Father, the first member of the Trinity. Righteous anger, Jesus' anger, is out of zeal to restore worship. He flips the tables and drives sin out. Say, okay, so what does it look like to flip tables righteously? Lots of things. 
No way I could, you know, exhaust some sort of list on that. But I think I've seen it a few times in my experience to some degree, right? Perhaps it looks like, perhaps, right, churches leaving their denominations after being in there 100 years because denominational leadership's implementing a blatantly unbiblical policy. So they have a choice to stay in and drive out worship or to drive out sin and continue to worship. And some have left something like a denomination even after 100 years or whatever. And that is sort of a version of flipping tables, hoping it'll get attention of leadership that they might go back to the doctrine it started on. I've seen this a little bit in parents telling their adult children, I love you, I always will but you can't live here for free if you're going to continue down a path of destruction. And I'm not talking about a gray area. I know it's Greenville. We got a lot of strict parents in Greenville, okay? We have seen people kick their kids out for going to a Carrie Underwood concert. Jesus, take the wheel, right? It's it's like, I don't know, man. I think, I don't know. I think that might be, I don't know if that's kick out worthy there, okay? But I'm talking about, I have seen that when, when, when an adult is unrepentantly breaking like the Ten Commandments, okay, like, like full-on rebellion against God. I've seen parents say, hey, you can't stay here if you're going to live like that. It's not because we don't love you. It is because this place is a house of worship and we have to restore worship and drive out sin. That can be like flipping tables. And the hope is that'll make it harder for that guy or girl to sustain a life of sin so that they'll come back to God and come back home. Church members, I've seen this, powerfully, publicly exposing their own clergy for their attempts to cover up the abuse the clergy did. Not allowing their clergy to sweep it under the rug and keep on ministering, right? They could have turned a blind eye and drove out worship. Instead, they drove out sin, even though it causes a lot of drama in the church. They do that so that people can know what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false and what is good and what is not good and what Jesus is really like, which is what the clergy were supposed to be doing in the first place. They restore worship by taking a stand. It can be like that when we flip tables, It could be that you cut ties with a friend who claims to be your Christian brother, but he's driving away worship. You sit down with him. You say, you gossip all the time. You complain all the time. You invite me to go sin all the time. It drives me crazy, man. I'm tempted all the time. So I feel like I forgive you, but can no longer continue a relationship with you in this state. We're going to help you. If you want the help, we'll get you to church. We'll get you some love. We'll get you some small group. But until then, man, I think I'm going to have to call it a day on hanging out every Friday night. That can be flipping tables. You work for an organization. It's no longer doing honest business, kind of like these guys exchanging money in the temple. They're not ethical. They're not helpful to anyone. And you're going to quit and go work at a place where your work can be worship. And you know your boss wants you there, and he's going to be all upset as you quit. But maybe this will get his attention. So you flip the tables. For Jesus, it looked like fashioning a whip and driving some cattle outside the temple so that everyone around him could wake up to how far that they have strayed and so that true worshipers of God could focus back in on him and the true meaning of the Passover. There's a thousand ways flipping tables can look. 
But here's what I want us to understand. The common thread for Jesus and for us is that it all stems from a zeal for us and others to worship the Father. That's why we do that. Righteous anger means we drive out sin so that worship can continue for the purpose of restoring worship. If we're angry for any other reason, it's likely that that's anger to be repented of. Jesus is the perfect example of righteous anger. We follow Jesus with our anger. The story continues. We now get to see the response of the merchants and the money changers. And then Jesus' final word to them on this matter. And I believe this is really where we find the big point of the story. The point of the story Jesus wanted everyone in that room, that outer court rather, to get. The, the point, the thing he wants them to know about him and why he's doing all this. I think we see that in the last several verses where we see authority and connection. Authority and connection. Verse 18, it says, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Right, so Jesus, he's driving out the animals, he's flipping the tables, and in, he's doing that, as he's doing that, he is claiming authority, right? See, the merchants and the money changers have been given permission to be in the outer court and to do business by the priest, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, whoever, someone like that. And Jesus walks in, not dressed like a priest, not dressed like a Pharisee. He comes in as a normal dude, low-class carpenter, in rags, and he says, no, 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 you can't do that here. No way, that's not what we're doing in the outer court. This is a place where the Gentiles worship for it was the Gentile court. And the Gentiles have come from even further than most of us, and they are expectant for pure and for powerful worship. Now they're coming in being met by the noise of the New York Stock Exchange. No, this has to go. By doing this, he's essentially claiming higher authority than the leaders of the temple. So the merchants and the money changers, they ask him, how can you back that up? How can you back up the authority that you're claiming? We're going to need to see some credentials here, sir. Right? We're, we're, you're gonna, to make a call like this, you're going to have to show us a miracle, man, like a sign. Show us what gives you this right. And it better be awesome. Right? We're going to put this thing on YouTube. But if it doesn't go viral, you're not in charge. Like, that's the idea. Like, You've you got to really display some power if you're going to exert that kind of power. Who are you to tell us what to do? Now, if you zoom out, this is kind of funny. Not really actually funny, like funny haha, but like funny, interesting funny, right? Like, here they are in God's temple, and God walks up, and they're like, who are you to tell us what to do here? Right? Don't you find that that's just a little ironic? Like, don't you find that's just kind of a, a ridiculous moment for them? Right? They're in God's house. The owner of the house comes up and says, no, thanks. No, no business done here. This place of worship, do it in the marketplace. And they're like, who are you to make that call? Looks a little funny, doesn't it? He could just say, well, let me tell you who I am. <laughs> I'm God, right? That could be the answer. 
But he's going to give them a very beautifully kind and merciful and wonderful answer instead. And he gives that same answer to us. He bases his authority somewhere else besides just calling down fire from heaven or making another whip and going two hands on this thing. He bases his authority in his resurrection, which at this point in the story is forthcoming, but at our point in the story, it's already happened. And that's a beautiful thing. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? He said, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And then he issues to them a challenge. Very interesting. He says, here's the challenge, right? You destroy the temple, and I will raise it again. I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, just to give you an idea of how crazy this would have sounded to those merchants and money changers, I'm going to show you a rendering of the temple of that day. I believe we have it on a slide. Okay? And one of the things I want you to just notice is, especially for the ancient world, this is a skyscraper. I mean, this thing is huge. And it is made of stone. And it took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contractors, if you will, like 46 years to get this thing built up. And here comes a carpenter from a hick town a guy who has built maybe tables and chairs and things like that, and he comes and he says, I'll tell you this, go start tearing that down brick by brick, and I'll build it again in three days. Like, how are you going to do, I can't even put Ikea furniture together in three days. How are you going to build this in three days? To their eyes, and their ears, this whole scene, this statement, man, this would have been fascinating. These would have been the words of a madman. I mean, this is intriguing. This is unthinkable that a man would say something like this. So the response is actually one of contempt. When they say, we built it in 46 years, you can't build it in three days. The, to us, that's a normal response. Back in the day, if you really get the Greek and the, the understanding of the culture, these were fighting words. I mean, this is there's a sense in which this is contempt for Jesus. They don't like that Jesus is angry towards sin. They don't like that God is a God of wrath. They don't like that there are commandments and accountability. Their response in verse 20 shows they choose contempt. This is a temptation for all of us, for me, for you, when Jesus flips our tables. And he is flipping our tables if we're following him. Has he ever flipped your table, swept into your life and started exposing you for what you're really doing and all the worship you're really not actually engaging in and that you're missing and he disciplines and he disrupts you in order to refocus you because he loves you. And sometimes when Jesus flips our tables in his righteous anger, we get unrighteously angry at him. And we demand a miracle, right? We demand a sign and we demand an explanation. You got to explain, Jesus, how you have this right to disrupt my business and still be a good God that I worship. You got to explain how you could be so exclusive that you're the only way to heaven. You got to explain why you talk about hell more than heaven, you got to explain why you can say to the religious leaders of our day, it's more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Like by what authority, Jesus, do you declare what is right and what is wrong? 
We respond with contempt. Now, here's the thing. If we respond with contempt, which we all struggle with, we've all done this, right? But if we do this, okay, as normal as that might feel in the moment, there's actually some consequences for this. If we respond with contempt, there's a chance that we're just going to keep doing the things that destroy us to our own destruction. Like if I'm right, which I'm not saying I, I am, all right? But if I'm right, and he really did cleanse the temple twice, if that's the case, that there's one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry, that's at least an interesting thing to know. He came in and flipped the tables and said no more. And three years later, when he comes back, they're doing it again and to their own destruction because after he flips the tables that time, they decide it's time to crucify the son of God. They kill God. How would you want to be that guy in history? They, in their contempt, go all the way to destruction. Contempt keeps us at the wrong tables. But there's another option. And the other option is contemplation. And that brings us to Jesus' table. Now, it's interesting. No one in the story chooses contemplation. Not even the disciples choose contemplation. I think that's just kind of just something that stuck out to me, right? Like if you're following a guy who can turn water into wine and then the next weekend on the Sabbath, he says, tear this thing down and I'll rebuild it. Like for me, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, let's dive into that, because that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What are you really saying? Spell it out for me, Jesus. Like, get, help me get clear on this. I know you know more than I do. I know you're more powerful than I am. So what are you talking about? When you talk about destroying and raising the temple, what do you mean? But no one does it. No one contemplates what he's saying. It is. It is rare for us to get, to, to, to get into a place where our, our sin is hurting us, where our worship is almost non-existent, and then for some reason, it's just our human nature, our sin nature, we, we, we don't go, huh, Jesus, I wonder what you're doing, that he might gently bring us to the truth. A lot of times we go on until it hurts so bad we're roughly brought to the truth, which is still grace, but it's a lot less fun. Amen? Amen. The disciples don't ask what do you mean by all this? No one contemplates. What are you doing? What are you saying? It specifically says in the next couple of verses, his disciples don't ask. His disciples don't know. They just start help cleaning up the outer court. Money merchants, they, they go away, and the scene just sort of ends that day right there. But it could have had a different ending if they just think, contemplate. What are you doing? What are you saying? Jesus, what are you telling me? What do you mean by destroy the temple and raise it in three days? Just a little contemplation. This whole thing could have gone a lot different. Now, they will eventually see what he meant. They'll, this could have ended differently, and they'll eventually get that ending, but it's not going to come for another three years where the whole world figures out what gives Jesus the right to call us to worship. His resurrection. The reason Jesus can tell us what to do and not do, the reason Jesus can define truth and false for us 
is because he rose again. Like if a guy dies and then he's like, you go to his funeral and like three days later, you see him in the frozen section at Publix. Like you may want to, hey, you might know something I do not. You might have a power I don't have. You might have, you might, you might be something I am not. How did you do that? What is going on? What, explain. You see, the truth is, Jesus wouldn't have any more right than anyone to kick these guys out or to flip our tables or to tell us what is truth and what is not. If he just died, he'd be just like all of us. But he didn't just die, did he? Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sin. He did not pass out. He did not swoon. He did not, he did not faint. That dude, he died. They buried him in a rock in public. They guarded this dude's tomb with the biggest army on the planet at the time, the Roman guards. And three days later, they could not find him. The stone was rolled away. And some said, perhaps his disciples stole the body. It's like, okay, you got 12 terrified fishermen and the Roman Empire to believe that the fishermen stole the body from the Roman Empire, it, I can't even help you at this point. 12 fishermen get all ninja and somehow take out Pilate and his boys for a corpse of a guy who could keep no promises. Like, I think you need to change up your medication, my friend. It is actually easier and to believe and more likely that here's what happened. Jesus was dead and then he came back. He rose again to life, bodily resurrection. This is what he was pointing to as his authority. Look at verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking of his temple, the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered. Finally, they contemplate. They remembered that he had said this to them. They believed. Then they believed. The scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now they're like, he has all authority in heaven and earth. These guys, they asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus says, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They said, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're not going to do that. It would be way too much work to destroy the temple. Plus, you're crazy, and you can't raise it up in three days. They wrote him off. But unbeknownst to them, three years later, they actually took him up on this offer. They did destroy the temple. And what I mean is, they destroyed the body of Jesus. They used a cat of nine tails. They hammered a crown of thorns into his skull. They nailed his hands and feet to wood. There, he experienced the ultimate disruption. He experienced the ultimate righteous anger of God for us. Then, sure enough, just like he said, after they destroyed the temple, which is the body of Jesus, three days later, 
he raised it back up just like he said he would. Meaning that Jesus bodily rose again from the grave on the third day. The Father has exalted him to the highest throne. It is his name that above, is above all names. He, he has been crowned King of kings, Lord of lords. What does that mean for you? February 26, 2023, it means we have our sign that proves his authority. It means he has the authority no one else does. He has the authority to tell us what is sin and what is righteousness. He has the authority to tell us what is worthless and what is worship. He has the authority to tell us who we are and who we should be. He has the authority to pronounce forgiveness or if we will not repent, judgment. Say, what gives Jesus the right to flip our tables? Say, he rose again from death. So he's got the authority. Plain and simple. We have our sign. Jesus is really who's in charge here. Worship him. But I want to include this. There is a warm element added to this. Just as he has the authority, he also desires connection. Just as he has authority, he also has the love. It is, it's not that he only has authority, but with his authority, what he did was he paid everything it costs for connection with him because he truly desires connection with us. To go into the temple for the Passover, you did need to pay for an animal. You did need to exchange your currency, and you did need to pay the temple tax. It was through the law that people were being charged to come and worship God. Jesus then goes to the cross, and he rises again, like we've been saying. In doing so, yes, he proved his authority, but in doing so, he becomes the ultimate sacrifice, and he bought for everyone who would believe in him access to God. He exchanged the currency from law to grace that's free for all who believe. When Jesus compares his body to the temple, when, when he specifically compares his work on the cross and in the resurrection to the temple, he is saying that not only does he have authority, but he is now the new and the better temple which is really, really good news for us. Now it's not just that we ascend to the temple because we love it, but the temple has descended to us because he loves us. Jesus now does what the temple used to do in a much bigger and better way. Just like the temple was a place where a sinner would be atoned for and released from his sin, Jesus is now the place where sacrifice has been made. Atonement has been made and we've been released and set free. Just like the temple was a place where a sinner would find a priest when he is hurting and the priest would mediate on his behalf to God, Jesus is now the place where we find mediation between God and man. Just like the temple was the place where we would go to sit in the presence of God, Jesus now sends us the Holy Spirit so that wherever we are, we are in the presence of God. Just like the temple was a place 
where heaven and earth connected again, like it did back in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now Jesus is the place where heaven and earth connect. And instead of us trying to find him, he now comes to us and he walks with us in the cool of the day every day. Jesus is the new temple, the place where we connect with God. And here's what this means. When he flips our tables, he's not doing that just to prove he's in charge. To be honest, he's not real big on titles. Chain of command. It's really not Jesus's thing. What he's doing is he is bringing us back to the full joy of connection with him to give us what we came expectantly for, pure and powerful moments of worship, loving union with him, the Father and the Spirit, to enjoy his Passover for us, his death and resurrection, his salvation, his gospel, his love, his plan, his purpose, his presence. Jesus flipping the tables is not just a story that shows us He's mad at the rich TV preachers, ministers making money off of people. It's a story that shows us the passion of Jesus to connect with us and to receive our worship. It is a story of Jesus' passion to live with us in relationship with us and to us. So do not respond to him today with contempt, but rather contemplation. Examine your hearts and your sin. Repent of your sin. Flip your own tables so he doesn't even have to. And ask him, what is it you are telling me? What is it you are showing me? Bring me back to the place of pure and powerful worship to you. Today is a great day to practice some righteous anger and drive out our own sin. It's part of following Jesus. I'm going to pray and the musicians will come up and we'll enjoy another part of following Jesus. Jesus. That is singing to Jesus and worshiping Jesus. As they come up, I just want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And just think what tables there are in your life that shouldn't be there. Start moving those around, getting them out so that what is supposed to be there can be there. Jesus isn't just in the table flipping game because he likes chaos. It's so that you can refocus on worship to him. Why not repent and refocus right now? You know, you are a creature He is created. The purpose of the creature is to magnify, to worship, to glorify the creator. If you're here today and you're feeling unrighteous anger, it's probably because you're not in the right mindset as a creature and you're not thinking correctly about the goodness of your creator. Maybe it's a day for you to contemplate and think about some of those things. Either way, I want to pray and I want to pray for you and then we will sing. Jesus, we just worship you. You're so good to flip the tables for us. Thank you that you do not let injustice go 
without justice being served eventually. Thank you that you are like a king who defends us. Thank you that you are for holiness when sin destroys us. And thank you that when you do bring us back to putting our attention in and on you, you do it because you like us and because you love us, not just because you can. We thank you for who you are. I pray that we would contemplate that, repent of sin and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna be singing.